Well, all, all throughout Scripture, over and over again, we are warned not to give ourselves to the pursuit of the things of this world. That we are to be those who are pursuing heavenly or eternal things rather than merely temporal or temporary things. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, John just lays it out so bluntly. He says this, do not love the world or the things of the world. Don't love, don't give that, that greatest affection to the stuff of this life, John says. He says, and this is why if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's like telling a husband, don't love someone else. You've got to love your wife. You can't say, I love my wife, but I love her and her and her and her. At least not in households that have firearms. You can't do that. You won't get that far. It doesn't work. And so what John is saying here is don't love the world. Love the Lord. Love the Lord. There are two ways to go in the living of our lives. We can live our lives for this world, for the, the stuff and, and for the the circumstances of this life focused on that and, and everything rotating around it, making sure that, that what we have in this world is what we want, that we are comfortable, that the experience we have is pleasant. We can base everything about this, upon what it's like in this life, and that can be our target, or, or we can live for eternity. And we can make sure that everything we experience in this life, everything we pursue in this life, ensures that our experience in eternity is what we desire. You know, it's interesting. In, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable, uh, the parable of the sower. And it's about a farmer that goes out to sow his seed into a field. And the this, this story goes like this. The sower throws his seed out and it lands in, in a couple of different places. Some of it lands upon the hardened path. And as soon as it lands there, the birds come in they, and they pick it off and they take it away. Some of it falls in what we would call shallow soil. It's called the rocky soil. It's soil that does not have much depth. And though the plants spring up immediately, because it has no depth, as soon as things get hard, as soon as the sun comes out, they wither and die. And some of the seed falls in the weed patch. We call them gardens here, right? It's what we would theoretically hope to be a garden, but really it's just kind of an experiment in natural processes, right? And some of the seed falls amongst the weeds. And though it grows up, it is choked, it is strangled, and it produces no fruit. And some seed, we are told, falls upon the good soil and it produces fruit. Now, what Jesus says is this isn't about farming. What Jesus says is that this is about how we respond to the word. You know, this isn't a bad thing to think about before any time that we hear God's word or we read God's word or we consider God's word. It is very important how we respond to it. And the key here is our response. When we hear God's word, if we are hard, 
The enemy will swoop in and just take that away. And, and it will be like far too many Sundays when we walk out those doors and we're not really even sure what it is we talked about because it's gone from our minds already. Or we can be like the shallow soil who responds and says, yes, I'm in, that's great. But as soon as it gets hard, because we have no depth, we wither and die off and there's never any change. And here's the one that I think we struggle with the most. We can be like that seed that falls amongst the thorns, that falls in the weed bed. We hear it, it grows up, but it is choked and is strangled and it does not bear fruit because we are overwhelmed with the stuff of this world. The cares and the concerns for this life are what we are really about. And we don't give enough time, we don't give enough attention, we don't prioritize the things of the Lord, and so we don't grow. So let me ask you this, are you growing? Are you taking steps forward in your walk with Christ, or is that something that happened way back at the beginning? Are you taking strides forwards? We should be. We should be the good soil. And, and scripture tells us that the key to being the good soil is, is that it grabs onto that seed and it refuses to let it go. It's got this, this bold doggishness to it that it will not let go. It holds on until there, there comes change into your life. The city of Tyre. The city that we, we looked at in the second of our two chapters last week and that we'll be looking at in both chapters in Ezekiel this week. The city of Tyre, you could call it the city of weeds. The city of weeds because they were a people who were just focused upon nothing but life in this world. That's what they were all about. Well, where we pick up this morning, we're going to be in Ezekiel 27 and 28. In 27, uh, we, we are in a, a position here where the, the prophet has already transitioned. If you remember from last week, he quit talking about Judah's guilt and impending judgment. And now he's beginning to talk about the guilt and the impending judgment of the foreign nations that surround Judah. So last week in chapter 25, we, we looked at four nations that directly surrounded Judah. We looked at at the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. And, and then in chapter 26, he began to talk about the city of Tyre, which was just to the north of Judah. And then for both chapters this morning, he will continue to talk about this city of Tyre. God cares to get our attention about these things. And it is interesting that the things that he rebukes this pagan city for are probably the things that we need to hear the most. That should be a bit of a slap across our face. That should be a little bit of a, wow, what God felt he needed to say to these pagan cities 
is the stuff that I think if we take an honest look at ourselves and the Christian culture in which we abide is the thing that he would say to us as well. Well, let's begin to take a look. Chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel the prophet. Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre. So a lamentation, a passionate expression of grief. Remember, these guys, it's a pagan city, but it breaks God's heart. God does not want to destroy any nation, any people, but he will bring justice. He will bring justice. And so he tells Ezekiel, say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrances to the sea, they were there on the coastland, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands. Remember, Tyre was an island city and it grew wealthy by becoming a, a center for trade and commerce. And so thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your brothers are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. Basically, what Tyre is saying is, let's just face it, I'm awesome. I am really, really awesome. Um, Basically, Tyre is arrogant, arrogant. And the Lord, just as he says he will do in Proverbs 16, 18, the Lord responds, the Lord says there in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Lord says that pride comes before destruction, that his response to pride is destruction. This isn't just natural consequences. This is God's discipline of those whom he has created. James 4, 6 uh, clarifies it for us a bit. It says there, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So this destruction that comes after pride, it's not just a natural consequence of pride. It's more than that. It's God himself responding to it. And God saying, I will oppose those who are pride. So how does this destruction take place? Well, the Lord compares the city of Tyre. Remember, it's a city that made its fortune by sending ships all around the world to trade. And so he he compares this island city to a grand sailing ship, beginning in verse 5. They made your planks of fir trees from Sinir, and they took cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your deck of pines from the coast of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. A fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Blue and purple from the coasts of Elisha was your awning. So basically, what the Lord is saying is you've got the best ship out there. You really are awesome in appearance. And not only that, they have the best crew. Look at verse 8. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. The elders of Gabal and her skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. That's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. It's, it's, it's basically plugging your leaps. So they've got the wise guys down underneath who are, are filling the holes, keeping them from sinking. 
And he says, all the ships of the sea with their mariners were in you to barter for your wares. Persia, Lud, Put were in your army as your men of war. They hung the shield and helmet in you. They gave you splendor. Men of Arvad and Helic were, were on your walls all around, and men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your wall all around. They made perfect your beauty. So, so they had the best, the best military force to protect them. And we'll see verse 12, they had the best customers from all over the known world, from one far end to another. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind, silver, iron, tin, and lead. They exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach traded with you. They exchanged human beings. And so here you see their utter depravity as they're trading in humanity and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. From Beth to Gorma, they exchanged horses, war horses and mules for your wares. Uh, the men of Dedan traded with you. Many coastlands were your own special markets. They brought you in payment ivory tusks and ebony. Syria did business with you because of your abundant goods. They exchanged for your wares emeralds, purple embroidered work, fine linen, coral and ruby. Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged for your merchandise wheat of minneth, meal, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus did business with you for your abundant goods because of your great wealth of every kind, wine of Helbon and wool of Sahar and casks of wine from Uzal. They exchanged for your wares, wrought iron, cassia, and calamus were bartered for your merchandise. Dedan traded with you in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your favorite dealers in lambs, rams, and goats. In these they did business with you. The traders of Sheba and Ramah traded with you. They exchanged for your wares the best of all kinds of spices and all precious stones and gold. Haran, Cana, Eden, traders of Sheba, Ashur, and Chilmad traded with you. In your market, these traded with you in choice garments, in clothes of blue and embroidered work, and in carpets of colored material, bound with cords and made secure. The ships of Tarshish traveled for you with your merchandise. Two things to notice there. That's a, that's a long list of places and stuff, isn't it? Here's one of the things that I want you to notice when you come to a passage of scripture like this. The places that it talks about. Now, not all of them do we know exactly where they are. Some of these places, like Tarshish, there's some debate. Is it, was it here or was it there? But they know that it was a real place. And it was a place that was mentioned in other ancient documents. Most of these places, they know exactly where they were. And the things that they talk about trading from those places, they were things that we either know they had and they traded from that place in that day, or they are things that were reasonable to be, that we would expect to be traded from that place in that time period. You see, the Bible isn't myths and fairy tales. It's an accurate historical document that you can put your faith in, that you can trust, that you can have confidence in. Secondly, I want you to notice here, what the Lord is saying is, listen, you have achieved 
complete success, Tyre. You are the best. You are the cream of the crop. You are the undisputed champion of commerce. You've got wealth. You've got power. You've got fame. You've got admiration. You've got luxury. You've got security. You are winning this life. But as we're going to see, as will always happen, if you make this world your treasure, you're going to lose everything you have. You're going to lose it all. Proverbs 23, 4 talks about this. It says, don't wear yourself out to get rich. Be wise enough to restrain, restrain yourself. The proverb tells us this. Everyone is going to want to pursue this. But the wise man is going to be the one who restrains himself from wearing himself out in pursuit of the stuff of this life. Uh, why is that? Why, why is it wise not to spend yourself in pursuit of all this? Well, Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells a story. He says this, take care. Be on your guard against covetousness. In other words, desiring to possess more and more. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Did you catch that? Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. In other words, God blessed him. God gave him great wealth. He was blessed by God. The question is, what should his response be to that? And so he says, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got so much coming in. I don't even have a place to put it all. And so he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to keep it all to myself, and in that, I will have complete security. I no longer have to trust in God for a, a harvest to come in. I no longer have to trust in God that he will provide for me this year and next and the year after that. But rather, I'm going to put all my hope and all my trust in this stuff. But God said to him, Jesus says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Really, that, that parable that Jesus told right there, that, it's about idolatry, isn't it? it? It's about putting our trust in something besides our Savior. It's putting our trust uh, um, maybe in money, maybe in possessions or position. It's putting our trust in having ample security having control over our life or our destiny. It's putting our trust in in a continual flow of pleasure, however we might, might measure that. It's putting our trust in, in having power to make sure that we can take care of ourselves. 
putting our trust anywhere but in the Savior. These things, they are all the stuff of this life. They're the stuff of this world. And so, by definition, they are going to be prone to going stale, to rotting, dissolving and slipping through our fingers as we try to grasp them. These are things that are going to be vulnerable to theft and loss and breakage and mildew. They are not eternal things. And so, God will take them from us for our good in order to turn us to him. Do you think about this? When you invest your life in the stuff of this world, you are investing something that is eternal in something that is temporary. Think about that. Think about that. You are spending something that is eternal in order to gain something that will not last. I know we all need houses. We need to have jobs. It's good for us to work. We've got to pay bills. But we need to make sure that we don't give undue attention to necessary things. That we don't spend our lives on the stuff of this world. Look at what the Lord does with the good ship tire. Part with you, verse 25. So you were filled and heavy laden in the heart of the seas. Here's the ship, the city of Tyre, full of all its stuff. It's got everything that you could ever want. He says, your rowers have brought you out into the high seas. But then it says, the east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the seas. Your riches your wares, your merchandise, your mariners, your pilots, your calkers, your dealers in merchandise, all your men of war who are in you, with all your crew that is in your midst, sink into the heart of the seas on the day of your fall. Tyre had everything, but like all those who put their hope, their trust, their investment in this world, Tyre would lose everything. That's how, how it works, folks. That's just how it works. You take none of this with you. You've heard that, right? It's cliche. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It, it doesn't happen. You can't take it with you. There was some guy, I think it was down in Texas, he got buried in his Cadillac. All that did was waste a good Cadillac. It's not like he's driving around heaven honking at everybody. You can't take it with you. When we depart this life, we lose everything. That is everything that isn't eternal. Listen again, words of 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, I think this is an obvious truth. You should not take the Titanic as a life model. That's just a bad decision. I mean, I can understand the people who got on the Titanic before they knew it was going to sink, okay? But if you're looking to book a ticket on the Titanic with your life, you're a fool. I mean, it was a great ride while it lasted. Man, it was great. It was top of the line. It was brand new. It was just like tire. Everything that the world desired. The only problem was it sunk. We can't use the Titanic as a roadmap for our life where we invest everything in something that's going to just end up at the bottom of the sea. No matter how good the ride is, we've got to think about the destination. We've got to think about the end result. We will do well to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. There in verse 26, the Lord said this, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Wouldn't you like to be as rich as Bill Gates? Okay, one of my, one of my youth group kids from back when I was a youth pastor, is Bill Gates' nanny. Yeah, took care of his kids. Traveled the world with them. All sorts of stuff. Saw things that I can't even imagine, I'm sure. Could you imagine having all that wealth? For what? A mere 60 or 70, at the most 80 years. And then what? What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? Well, the watching world who mimicked Tyre, who followed in their footsteps, they were horrified by what happened to Tyre. They were horrified because they were following in Tyre's footsteps. They were using the Titanic as their road map as a template for living. Look at verse 28. At the sound of the cry of your pilots, the countryside shakes, and down from their ships come all who handle the oar. The mariners and all the pilots of the sea stand on the land and shout over you and cry out bitterly. They cast dust on their heads and wallow in their ashes. They make themselves bald for you and put sackcloth on their waist, and they weep over you in bitterness of soul with bitter mourning. In their wailing, they raise a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre, like one destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares came from the seas, you satisfied many peoples. With your abundant wealth and merchandise, you enriched the kings of the earth. Now you are wrecked by the seas in the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and all your crew in your midst have sunk with you. All the inhabitants of the coastlands are appalled at you. And the hair of the kings bristles with horror. Their faces are convulsed. The merchants among the peoples hiss at you. You have become, you have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. 
Funerals are interesting. I mean, not, not for the person who died. I don't think they really care. But for those of us who go to funerals, they're interesting. Because we are reminded of the destination. We are reminded that there is a day of accounting. We are reminded, more than anything, that our day will come. I don't think I see people look more uncomfortable in any situation. I don't know, maybe you could go into a, a medical waiting room where people are waiting for a colonoscopy and it'd be close. But when people are waiting for a funeral to start, they look kind of like that. They know there is going to come an intrusion into their life that they are fearful of that will lay everything open and will expose reality in ways that they're not comfortable with. And I think that's why we, we hate funerals. We have to face the reality that we are temporary. And if we have, if we have lived for the things of this world, if we have lived lives that are about the temporary, that a day of accounting will come for that. Now in chapter 28, Ezekiel steps back and he takes another look at the city of Tyre. But this time he specifically is looking at two characters who, who, who are responsible for setting the course for Tyre's destruction. The first one is the prince of Tyre. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Now, crazy as it seems, it was a fairly common thing for rulers in the ancient world to take upon themselves the identity of whatever God it was that their people worshipped. And so, King Itobel III, the king that we are most likely talking about here in Tyre, he took on the identity of a, a, a false god that they called Melkart. Melkart. And so he claimed that he was a personal representation of Melkart. He, but the Lord answers and says, Yet you are but a man and no god. Though you make your heart like the heart of a god, you are indeed wiser than Daniel, the prophet, and no secret is hidden from you, but your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries by your great wisdom in your trade. You have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. So King Itobel, he used his great wisdom and understanding to amass wealth his success became his yardstick uh, with which he measured his life, which makes me want to stop and consider this for a moment. What's your yardstick? Itobel chose success, uh, monetary wealth to be his yardstick, to be the thing uh, by which he measured his life. What are you using to measure your life? Income? Possessions, security, 
Is it stuff of this life that is your measuring stick? That was his measuring stick, and it made him proud. Proud enough that he thought, even though he was a mere man, that that he should probably be treated as if he were a god. He should be viewed as if he were a god. Men, husbands, dads, in any small way, could that accusation be levied against you? You have worked, you have earned, and therefore you should be treated as one who is above, who is superior. Or are you an imitator of the servant king? An imitator of the servant king, serving those whom you lead. Are you loving them? Is Christ loved the church, sacrificing yourself for them? Those who lead are to serve those whom they lead. That is our master's way. That is our master's way. Mark 10, 45, Jesus puts it this way. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, ransom for many. Let's follow in his ways, guys. Verse 6, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations, the Babylonians, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor, and they shall thrust you down into the pit. And you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. You will still say, or will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And so just as the Lord said back in Ezekiel 21, God will exalt the lowly and bring low the exalted. King Itobal has has arrogantly sought his own exaltation and glory, and so God, who opposes the proud, will bring him low. Now, Ezekiel turns his attention next to the one that he calls the king of Tyre. But as we will quickly see, this is no mortal king. Uh, Verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, um, sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So here this king of Tyre that Ezekiel tells us about was not only a picture of perfection, but he was wise and he was beautiful. And did you notice this? He was in Eden, you know, the Garden of Eden. Clear back at the beginning of time. Clearly this cannot be King Itobel or, or any other human king. 
Ezekiel continues on, verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were in the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walk. So this king of Tyre is a heavenly, not an earthly being. He's an angel, one who served God, a creature of great power and glory. What Ezekiel is doing for us here is he is recounting for us, similar to what Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 14, he's recounting for us the fall of Lucifer. He's giving us the backstory for Satan. Verse 15, he says, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed, or or it's possible, I think it's more likely that word is actually banished. I banished you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I want you to notice a couple of things. I think these are important details. First of all, I want you to notice that God made Lucifer good. God did not create evil. God did not create him evil. God did not create him flawed. In fact, it says just the very opposite. He said he was perfect and wise and blameless. So apparently God created Lucifer good, but he did something else as well. He gave him free will. As he has with us, he's given us the ability to choose. And notice this. I think this is is worth noticing. It was self-exaltation. It was self-seeking. It was self-focus that led him to this fall. He would have been the king of selfies. He was all about himself and promoting himself and putting himself out there. That was the core core issue. I I like the way Philippians 2.3 is expressed through the New International Version. It says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. There are two paths here. There are two paths for us to take. We can take the path of this world of self-focus, or we can take the path where we defer to others. We consider others as greater than ourselves. The path of humility where we imitate our Lord. And again, guys, men, husbands, dads, There is an enemy who wants to steer you, who wants to keep you invested in the stuff of this world, who does not want you walking the paths that the Lord has laid out before us of sacrifice, of of selflessness, of focusing on the eternal rather than upon the temporal or the temporary. There is a king of Tyre behind every prince of Tyre, and there is an enemy behind each of us seeking 
to move us. But the Lord has laid out a different path for you. And I want you to understand this. I want you to understand this clearly. The Lord lays that path out for you because he loves you. Because he loves you greatly. Jesus says this in John 10.10, the enemy has come to still kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The enemy is going to lie to you. He's going to tell you this is the place of pleasure. Go down this road to get everything you want. Invest yourself in these things and you will be satisfied. But it's a lie. He is going to point you towards the stuff of this world and this life because he wants to still and he wants to kill and he wants to destroy you. But Jesus points you to a different path, to investing in things that are eternal, towards humility, towards service. And he points you this way because it is the path of life and life abundant. He points you this way because he loves you. Let's look at the end of the king of Tyre because his rebellion, his fall is not the end of the story. Verse 17, I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Uh, By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Here God speaks prophetically of what he will do, that he will judge Satan, But it is such a very definite thing, definite that he will do it, that he speaks of it in the past tense. Biblical scholars call this the prophetic past tense. It is something that has not yet happened, but it is so guaranteed that it will happen that you can use the past tense to describe it. It is something that the Lord will do. He will bring final justice. It's the final thing that that he focuses on. Think of Revelation chapter 22 there in verse 12. Think of what Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. In other words, justice. Bringing justice to repay everyone for what he has done. Final justice has not come yet. The day of judgment has not taken place, but it will. It will. It is so sure that here Ezekiel speaks of it in the past tense. Well, he goes on in verse 20 with a prophecy against Sidon. Sidon being the sister city of Tyre. The two are always mentioned together in scripture. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For when, for I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets, and the slain shall fall in her midst, and the sword that is against her on every side, then they will know that I am the Lord. 
Remember when you were a kid and your brother or sister were getting in huge trouble? What would you do? You would just kind of slowly back away, right? You're just kind of heading for a door. You don't know where it is. It could be a broom closet. That's just fine. You are just, you are going to find a way to blend into the wallpaper. And then mom or dad mention your name. And you know, guilty or innocent in that moment doesn't matter a whole lot. And, and I, I kind of wonder if that's how Sidon felt. I mean, Tyre is just getting walloped here. And they're guilty. They deserve it. It is just. It's right. You don't want your name brought up in that, in that conversation. When God is speaking to Sidon, you don't want to hear him say, and now you, young man or young woman. And yet that's, that's what happens with Sidon. Because why? Because they were sister cities. They were connected with each other. Dear friends, I want to encourage you to be reaching out to people who are lost in the world, but I want to caution you. Take to heart what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's no joke. You will be shaped by those that you tie yourself to. Sidon was shaped by their relationship with Tyre. Well, thankfully, this chapter ends on an upbeat note. It, it ends with a glimpse of what's ahead uh, of God's grace and mercy, his blessing and his protection that is being poured out on his people. Now, remember, this is talking about his people whom he has disciplined, whom he is disciplining. Uh, but they, they continue on with him. Those who continue on with him, those who turn from their idolatry, those who, who continue to stay with the Lord, he is, going to, he is going to bless them again. Verse 24, and for the house of Israel, there shall be no more briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them, speaking of these nations who surrounded them. Among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt, then they will know that I am the Lord, their God. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered, because they are scattered now in, in that day. He says, and manifest my holiness in them. I think that's a reference to Jesus. Then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to their servant Jacob. And you know what? The, God's people are back in their land today, are they not? That is an exciting thing. That's something that we see. It was not true for so, so much of history, and yet today, from 1948 on, we can see that God's people, though they are not faithful to God like they ever were, they are back in the land. And it says, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards, and they are certainly doing that. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. And as we're going to see as we get into the later chapters of the book, there's more that God has yet to do. There is so much of this that, that God has still yet to do in dealing with Israel and dealing with her neighbors. And those are things that we wait for and we long for and we watch for with great expectation. But today... In this moment, 
we need to consider what it is we're spending ourselves upon, what it is that we're giving ourselves to. Are, are we like tired? Because, man, that is our culture. That is America in a nutshell. We are a people who are about stuff. We are a people who, whether we're wealthy or not, we're all about wealth. And if we put our hope in that ship, it will sink. The good things God has given to us, they're a blessing. It's a blessing that God has, has let us be here. Having been in other countries, in other places, it's not like this. We've got a good, we are blessed by God, and we can be thankful for that. But what we can't do is let it become an idol. We can't put our hope in it. And we can't spend our lives upon it. We need to be those who are consumed with and invested in the things of the kingdom as we serve the king of kings. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time together. And God, I pray that you would take these things that we've talked about and by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would shine your light into our lives. God, that you would expose, that you would open up before us those areas, those places where, where we are out of sync with you where we are out of line in our priorities, in our investment. God, I pray that you would give us a hunger for things that are eternal, for things that will matter for all of eternity. And Lord, that we might begin to experience abundant life that you've promised for us. We ask it all in Jesus' name.